Welcome to Deconstructing the Myth, a podcast exploring reasons why those who grew up in the American Evangelical Church are now leaving it behind. Today, I talk with Maria Stewart, who grew up loving the Evangelical Church, but later discovered problems with how she had been presented with the Bible, ultimate truth, and the sexism and shame that came with purity culture. She gives the history and background of purity culture and some thoughts on how to move forward from an agnostic theistic perspective. For more on purity culture from a Christian perspective, check out my conversation with Jenny White in episode 5. Thank you for coming in and telling us a little bit about your journey, especially in regards to purity culture. You're welcome. I think this is a really important (laughs) topic. Could you just start out by telling us a little bit about your spiritual upbringing and deconstruction? Yeah, sure. So I was raised in the Church of Christ, which is what I would call traditional non-denominational sect of Christianity. My parents came to the Church of Christ uh, by converting into it. My dad was raised Catholic, and my mom was raised in a non-religious household. So they were both raised in households that had a lot going on, and some chaotic Mm -hmm. issues happened there. So when they converted over to Christianity, I think they really bought all in to it, and they wanted us to have a very different life than they did which is why um, I was raised in quite a strict household. And I will say that my parents did the best that they could with what they had. I love my parents very deeply, and they really did the best with what they had, but they had a lot of influences, you know, within the church. So while I was growing up, a lot of our spiritual teaching was based on how to be a good person, first and foremost, you know, and then saving others, which I think leads into evangelicalism, and then Bible stories. And I had a good experience with the church, but it was only after I was an adult that I realized that some of the things that I've been taught were actually hurting me and others. So I just uh, started deconstructing my faith about two years after my husband came out as an atheist. And in the beginning, when he would talk to me about things, I was very unwilling to hear any of the questions that he had or any of the good points that he was bringing up anyway. You know, I felt very defensive and I was very, very fearful to even participate in the kind of conversation that he wanted to have. The turning point for me came when I started hearing stories about other cultures. You know, I remember Dylan was taking a world mythology class and as part of his degree, um, he had to learn a lot about the other world creation myths. And so many of them have a very similar writing style as the Bible, which makes sense because they all lived around each other. You know, they were all in the same area. And after realizing this, I started looking into other ideas and other spirituality and different opinions that I had never heard before. I had always been taught that the Bible was to be taken very literally (laughs) and that it was the end-all be-all of all literature. You know, that the Bible is the tippy-top of anything that you can ever look at or read. And it was very hard for me at first to break out of that black and white mindset that I had been entrenched into up to this point. There was a few really good sources that helped me. Uh, Firstly, the podcast Unbelievable. And it's been going on for years and years. But basically, all it is is debates between people of a certain religion. They have all different religions. And then people that don't believe. And that really helped me because I started hearing things that I had never heard before and other people's opinions on it. And then secondly, I started trying to really listen to the people that I would come in contact with with an open mind and not to judge them because their stories were different than mine. And as I found that the more that I learned about this world and the people that were living around me, 
the less sure I was that there was a black and white answer. And it was also at this time that I began to realize some of the trauma that I experienced through the church's hands in regards to sexism and purity culture. Thank you for sharing that background. Could you tell us a little bit about your current spirituality? So in my uh, belief system, I believe that spirituality and our relationship with it ebbs and flows over the course of our whole lives. As I said before, when I started to realize how I had been affected by the way that Christians tend to treat women, it was really a wake-up call for me. I have a very strong tendency towards leadership, both in my personal and professional lives, and for me to be told for the majority of my life that I would never be able to serve in that capacity was devastating because I loved the church. I loved being there. I loved the community. Mm -hmm. And to be told that I would not fit in in this strength that I had was... Like I said, it was devastating for me. Um, I mean, I would think about it like this. I have an actual degree in leadership and in in business. I've been leading professionally for about 10 years. um, And yet I was not accepted for that in the church. To go even farther than that, you know, some people would say, and this has been told to me, that a man should be doing the job over me even if he was worse at it, Mm -hmm. simply because of the biological sex he was born as. I mean, that's like you walking into a job interview and the boss tells you that they decided to hire a man over you, even though they know you're a better fit, simply because he happens to be a man. There's a reason why discrimination like this is illegal in jobs. There's no way to be successful if you're essentially cutting off access to fully 50% of the people. I think that it's time we start to question why we aren't holding our churches to the same standard as we hold everywhere else. Mm -hmm. At some point, you know, I had to look at whether I was okay being party to my own oppression. What kind of example was I showing to my daughter by staying in that system? So that helped me to move out of what I would call Christianity. Mm -hmm. And now the feeling I have towards it is predominantly anger. Mm. And I hope in the future I can move past anger into something that celebrates Christianity for the good things that it has done. But right now I feel very angry that the same systems that I was taught were there to love people and help them have turned out to be so rotten. Mm. It's like peeling layers back, you know, and the more you find out what people have done, the, just the worse it is. And I'm not going to go, you know, into everything that's happened to me or others like me, because that would take a long time. (laughs) But I will tell you one story to show a little bit of what I'm talking about. When I was going to a Church of Christ about five years ago, and this was shortly after Dylan had told me he was an atheist, obviously at that time I was very fragile. You know, throughout my whole life I had grown up praying for my husband and thinking that God would send me somebody who was going to be the quote-unquote leader of our home spiritually. And so... Letting go of that was difficult for me in the beginning. And I will say now I'm very, very happy with where we are in our relationship. But at that time, I was very fragile. And I had a member of this church tell me that our marriage wouldn't last and we would probably get divorced based on the verse um, in Second Corinthians that says, quote, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Mm-hmm. Unquote. Clearly, you know, this is the wrong thing to say to someone that's hurting and struggling. I think it shows really a staggering lack of empathy. And I'm sure that there are some of you listening that will say, well, obviously that was the wrong thing to say, and I would never say that. But I don't think it is obvious because Mm -hmm. I have story after story where, 
it's very similar to this, that Christians have been more interested in using the Bible or my faith against me and others. Mm. And like I said, it, it, it makes me sad. I, I gave 27 years of my life to believing something. You know, sometimes I've gotten comments where, and this has happened to me as recently as three weeks ago, where people say, you can't hold every Christian responsible, or not every Christian is like that, or the church isn't specific Christians. But although I that is true of every group, you know, I've seen enough bad to want to distance myself from the Christian group as a whole. I will say that if any of you are out there and are confronted by a victim of anything, but really in this situation specifically of spiritual trauma, reacting in a way that protects the church, protects mm. the people that did that to them is just not right. The only thing you should really say is, I'm so sorry that happened to you, and how can I help you move forward? Yeah. I know that's something that's been a big part of your journey, leaving the church, leaving evangelicalism and Christianity, has been how purity is presented um, especially in the form of purity culture. And I know that it, you have said before, it's not just the church, but that was something that you felt like was a big deal in your story. Could you share a little bit about that with us? Sure. So, you know, I went through puberty right at, right during or right after what I would say was the heyday for the purity culture. And, and I was born in 1991, okay. <laughs> in front of those listening. I was taught that sexual purity was a salvation issue. Mm. and that it was paramount for those of us who say we follow Christ. My experience was very standard. You know, I had a purity ring. I participated in purity pledges, which I'll talk about a little bit later. I was also given books like, uh, quote, And the Bride Wore White, Seven Secrets to Sexual Purity by Dana Gresh, mm. and, quote, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, unquote, by Joshua Harris. These books really focus on completely sterilizing sexual encounters and closely tie in sexuality with worthiness and salvation. So I became interested in researching purity culture when I stumbled across a podcast speaking about the shame and guilt and sexual problems that stem from it. And I saw a lot of myself in that story. So after that, I, I started to dig deep into it. I wanted to heal from the shame that I felt, and I wanted to try and help other people that I knew had been affected too. Hmm. So before we get too much more into your story, let's take a step back and talk about what purity culture even is, because I think that's a phrase that we hear a lot, but for those of us who grew up in the church, especially, it's kind of ambiguous as to what all that entails. Um, I know you have done a ton of research into the origins um, in America and, and what that has looked like. Could you just share from your perspective some of your findings? So when people are talking about purity culture, purity and the idea of worthiness associated around sexual chastity is not a new idea. But the movement that we specifically call purity culture really came into being after the AIDS crisis that happened in the 80s. And many people were worried about HIV and AIDS and other STIs. And so a shift began to happen in the more conservative sectors of where there was a call to return to quote unquote traditional values, you know, some of which center around chastity and sexual abstinence. Because of this push, the federal government began to supply money towards abstinence only until marriage sexual education in mm. schools. This really began under the Reagan administration, but it continued until the Obama administration curbed the funding. 
The reason why they curbed the funding was based on a nine-year comprehensive study that showed that young people that experience abstinence-only sex ed were no less likely to have sex. Mm. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Trump administration resumed the funding in 2016. Mm. And um, just to let you know, some of the information I'm talking about here, I received from the book uh, called Pure by Linda Claykine. Mm which I would highly recommend to anyone that is wondering about purity culture and how it has affected them or how it has affected our society in general. When the federal government began to fund abstinence-only sex ed, it was through a Title V abstinence-only until marriage program. And the program required states to also raise money. So any, any money that the federal government gave to the states, they were required to raise money to match it. Hmm. So the... You know, it was distributed after that time to health departments, faith-based organizations, and schools. The program still continues to this day, by the way. <laughs> this is not an old thing. Yeah. As you can imagine, you know, where the money is, people will follow. There will be businesses that crop up. So there was a huge influx of purity-based merchandise and propaganda, ranging from purity rings, like the one that I had, to mugs, shirts, calendars, stickers, underwear, books, you That's name wild. it. Underwear? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, you you can oh, imagine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> There were even Bibles that were specifically geared towards the idea of purity and abstinence that had non-biblical study pages uh, mm. geared towards the idea of purity and, um, you know, dating advice, basically. It's no wonder that, you know, young people, and I am included in this, began to equate purity with salvation and their relationship with God mm -hmm. when these items were taught and marketed side by side on a yeah. weekly basis. I know that sometimes we can think of these kinds of marketing materials and say, well, I don't know how many people this really affected, right? Or is this such a big deal now that I should think about this? Mm -hmm. But just to put this into perspective, there is a group called the Silver Ring Thing that hosts Purity Pledge events. They reported to host 1,300 events as of 2017, reaching over 684,000 people. Wow. Another group, which is called True Love Waits, started to campaign to receive money towards abstinence-only funding. And in 1994, they brought 20,000 children to the National Mall to put up purity pledges and meet with President Clinton. Mm -hmm. His administration allocated $50 million towards the Title V funding that I mentioned earlier. So, you know, you can see how this is kind of building and building. Yeah. A purity curriculum provider called Choosing the Best estimates that they had 5 million students complete their program since 1993. They are one provider. So mm -hmm. one provider of that. I think it's safe to say that the purity culture has really touched countless lives. And in some senses, it's changed the generation that I am part of for the worse. Mm -hmm. The biggest problem that I really have with purity culture is that it's built on a lie. There's one best way to choose to experience intimacy. And if you don't do this, if you don't do this a certain way that you are jeopardizing your relationship, not only with God, but also with your future spouse, mm -hmm. it lies to the people involved telling us and them that you follow the steps and the sexuality you experience in marriage will be magically beautiful and perfect despite the lack of any real discussion about the potential pitfalls that sexual intimacy, no matter who you're with, may come with. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a this is a part of all of our lives, and it, it just kind of leaves out that part of it. Yeah. It places shame as the pr primary motivator, and studies have shown that those influenced by purity culture are more likely to believe that their partners will be upset if they have sex, 
that they will lose their partner's respect, and that they were also less likely to experience pleasure with sex than Mm -hmm. their counterparts. Purity culture affects both girls and boys, both women and men, but girls are a whopping 92% more likely to experience sexual guilt than boys. Mm -hmm. And the idea of girls and women needing to be untouched before marriage is as old as time. I have heard things like, once people get married that have finished the race, so to speak, you know, and, and waited and done all the things right, there are unique problems that come with having sex in general and thinking I was going to be rewarded in a way, or it was going to be easier or, and that's something I have just heard from friends repeatedly. Mm -hmm. And it never occurred to me that it was because of these messages. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it started to occur to me as I started looking into deconstruction, but talking to you has pointed out, oh, wow, I think a lot of that were these expectations that maybe weren't always, to me, as explicitly spelled out, Like, but it was things I assumed. Oh, if this is God's plan, then mm-hmm. there's a reward, or then it's this way, and it's a shame. It's a shame that not only do you follow all these rules and then just end up where everyone else is, but that there's trauma to undo. Right. I guess it's not really a question. <laughs> That's some thought I had on that. No, <laughs> I, I agree. And, you know, there's, you know, imagine that your whole life you're mm-hmm. told to act, dress, speak a certain way. Yeah. <laughs> again and again, you're told these things are tied to who you are as a person. Are you dressing mm-hmm. modestly? Are you keeping a man from sinning by walking away when he's about to kiss you? Are you being submissive? Are you being gentle? Are you being kind? in the way that you handle yourself when you're talking to men. Yeah. All of these factors uh, roll into whether or not you are a good candidate to be someone's wife. You've stopped any relationship from going too far, even from holding hands and kissing. Then you finally get married and you're wildly disappointed that you cannot experience sexual pleasure the way you were expecting to. Mm-hmm. You can't remove the shame you feel even though you're married. This, As you've spoken about, this mm-hmm. story is not unique yeah. because if you hear something the entire time you're going through puberty and and every single time you talk about sexuality, it's associated with shame. If it's done incorrectly, Mm -hmm. then when you get married, that doesn't just disappear. You're still worried about it and you're still, you're still on the lookout for potential mishaps or potentially doing things incorrectly, even though you're now in the relationship that, you know, we've been told we were meant to be in. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, that's definitely not something that I think is very rare and it's yeah. really unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. So the second issue I really have with purity culture is it places so much worth on girls being pure. I remember when I was about 14, I was I was given a purity ring and a book called And the Bride Wore White. It was explained to me that I was like a perfectly wrapped gift. I remained pure until marriage. And then if I did that, I'd be able to give my husband this perfect, beautiful gift that was untouched. If I chose to be impure, however, it'd be like giving him a gift that had been unwrapped and sat on, squished. You get the idea. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of problems with this, really. But the main one, that it equates sexual activity with morality or worthiness. Mm. And again, you know, you, you go through all of these things, you get married, and that worry about worthiness does not go away. Yeah, It just gets replaced by something else. So do you think that this is a church problem or a Christianity problem or a wider scope problem in culture? So I really believe that it's both. Okay. I believe it's a church problem. I believe it's a Christianity problem. I believe 
To be honest, I believe that it's a worldwide problem. Mm. Okay. <laughs> this does not only exist in Christianity. Um, but yes, the, the things that we're talking about that are specifically purity culture related mm-hmm. are a uniquely Christianity problem. Um, the church and Christians in general need to stop consuming purity culture messaging and merchandise. They need to focus on helping those affected by spiritual coercion and shaming to heal. We also need to stop standing up for people that behave badly in the church. So what would it look like to have the church help amend this problem, do you think? I think, first of all, it would be by accepting its role in the issue. And I think this goes back to what I was talking about before when you kind of mention what has happened to you in the church and or what has been done to you by a specific Christian, Mm. the other person that is also a Christian starts to kind of jump up and and defend whoever did that, or the church in general. And just by saying, I'm sorry that happened to you, and accepting the role of Christianity in it, it doesn't mean that you are blaming every single Christian. It means Mm. that you're simply helping that person to heal. Um, So first of all, you know, accepting their role in the issue. And then secondly, by discussing what real intimacy should look like. Mm -hmm. So what do healthy relationships entail? You know, they entail a lot of different things, but respect, hard work, good communication. None of these things were what I was taught when I was growing up. You know, it was, it was just really based on being pure and then also submission to the husband and, you know, respect from the husband to the wife. Um, But churches could also set up support groups to help people learn how to move away from shame and guilt into a healthy relationship with their bodies. Because, you know, if we believe that God created our bodies, then we also believe that he created sexuality and Mm -hmm. the reactions that we have to other human beings inside of ourselves. So how Mm -hmm. how do we teach children how to have a healthy relationship with that? Um, they also need to take a swift and immediate stand against any victim blaming or shaming people who have had sex outside of marriage. The church that I was a part of in 2016 had a member shortly after I left, and who I knew, who was engaged and got pregnant. Instead of reacting in a healthy and supportive way, the elders reached out to her dad and asked when the woman was going to come in front of the congregation and repent. Oh, wow. Um, I cannot fully express to you how damaging I'm sure this was, how backward it is, how insane it is. Suffice to say that when that woman never went back to church. And as far as I know, she still hasn't. Hmm. I'm going to put a little thought out there if you want to think about it. And if listeners want to think about it, how do you think it affects someone if their whole lives, they've been told that abstinence before marriage is essential. It's a salvation issue. They have seen women being put up in front of the congregation and made to repent or apologize for getting pregnant. Then this person is also told from the time that they are born that life is precious and children are a blessing. Mm. But they're also seeing the mothers of those children being shamed for getting pregnant while not married. What kind of cognitive dissonance do you think occurs when that happens? And how many people do you think feel forced to choose between being shamed and remaining pregnant or making a different choice and hiding Mm. what they've done? That's a good point. Yeah. It's not a good spot <laughs> for sure. So in light of, of your new perspectives on, on the church and on these topics, now that you are an agnostic theist, how do you plan on presenting topics like purity and modesty and, and keeping yourself safe to your daughter? That's a really good question. And I think it's one that is very important. Um, obviously for when you have children in general, but with me being 
having a daughter, it is pretty unique, you know, in that instance. Um, so let's start with modesty. I've heard throughout my purity culture journey a couple of things about modesty. Uh, first of all, that modesty is important to keep yourself pure and others from sinning. One of the verses that I was told over and over in my biblical teaching was the one from Matthew 5.27, which reads, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her, his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go to hell. Now, when I was being raised, this verse was used to, to explain to us as women that we needed to protect men by covering ourselves. Mm. So this did not become the stumbling block for men. I only recently realized within the past few weeks that looking at this verse, it's specifically talking to the person that is looking yeah. at the woman and not the woman herself. When I was told about modesty, this verse was explained to me that the woman that was dressing a certain way was causing the man to falter. Hmm. That men didn't necessarily have agency over their own sexuality. They couldn't control it. So, you know, who wants to be the hand that's thrown to yeah. the fire? Yeah. You know? <laughs> that was kind of what, it, you know, if you are being the kind of woman that dresses immodestly, and modesty can mean different things to different people in different hmm. cultures, so... For me, it was taught that a tank top was immodest. Oh, wow. So if I am wearing a, a tank top and a man looks at me lustfully, then it was taught to me that, you know, that's, it is better for that person to cut me off completely oh, than for gosh. that person to go to hell. That is so, <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's not necessarily just my own experience. Yeah. That's what a lot of people have been told. And I know I talked about before that purity culture affects men and women, but it affects women at a far larger rate than men. And, you know, it's, it's continuously approached to us as in what you wear yeah. is what is affecting the other person. And, I mean, what we wear, yes, can affect other people, but that doesn't mean that we should bear the blame for something that somebody else does because of what we're wearing. Secondly, modesty is approached as a way to keep women safe from assault or unwanted sexual advances. And this idea of modesty is so insidious because it very subtly puts the blame of bad things happening on the person that is or not or is or is not dressing a certain way. So let's say, you know, you wear a short skirt, you go out to a bar, you get really drunk, and you fall down on your way home and someone takes advantage of you. If, if you are looking at it in this way, you could put the blame on that, on the victim by saying, Hey, you were wearing a short skirt. You chose to get drunk. So in a way you deserve what happens to you. Mm -hmm. And I think saying it out loud, you say to yourself, well, clearly not, yeah. you know, that person shouldn't have done that anyway. Mm -hmm. But by viewing modesty as an issue or as a way to keep yourself safe, that's what you're really saying. You're yeah. saying, if you don't do this, then you deserve what happens to you afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the very, like I said, it's, it's the very insidious way of kind of getting in there and, and blaming the victim. Yeah. So bad things happen to people or bad things are going to be done by bad people, regardless of what the other person is wearing. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk to my daughter about what she wears or how she acts, 
I'm going to just talk to her about kind of the broader view and just say, hey, you know what? When you go out to a place and you're having a party, you know, you need to be more careful in this culture that we live in, in this society that we live in, than other people may have to be. And I'm going to tell her straight out, this is not right. Yeah. This should not be the case. Women should be able to walk anywhere at any time without carrying mace and their keys and a rape whistle, etc., mm-hmm. and feel safe. However, because you live in this society, you need to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. So here's some ways to do that. Be aware of your surroundings. Carry mace with you. Don't leave by yourself. Mm-hmm. Don't get so intoxicated you don't know what's happening. If you get too intoxicated, you need to call somebody else to come get you. Me, you can call me. You know, so, so surrounding it with, by actual tangible ways that she can protect herself makes it so that she's going into the situation knowing that she has those options. And it's not about what you're wearing that's protecting you. It's about what you're doing that's protecting you. Mm -hmm. Do, am I being safe? You know, because I believe that people should be able to wear whatever they want, not just women, but people Mm -hmm. in general should be able to wear whatever they want. And not be attacked. I mean, going a little bit farther, let's say there's a gay guy that's wearing a tank top and there's another gay guy that like really likes shoulders Mm, and so attacks the first man. Mm -hmm. Would we then blame the first man for the assault because he was wearing a tank top? So we shouldn't really do that to women either. And, And it's just kind of putting it into perspective, I think, that will help my daughter to understand the surrounding issues without actually focusing on modesty. Yeah. Yeah. And before we move on from this idea, I th- this has been one of the most eye-opening and rewarding things about talking to you the past few months because I, I don't know if it was the church or my family or what happened um, or maybe just my interpretation, honestly, of that same verse in Matthew you brought up, but I was have always been much more concerned about personal safety linked to modesty than causing a brother to stumble, which, you know, to say out loud, it's kind of like, Ugh. but, but I have thought that those things were linked. And after talking to you, there's a lot of, there is research that shows they're not, you know, they are not assault will happen regardless of clothing choices. And in a way, some people may find that discouraging because they thought dress was on the list of tangible things Mm -hmm. to protect themselves and they're but to me I'm thinking this is great that's checked off the list Mm -hmm. that's not even a factor so let's move on to the factors we can um protect ourselves with right and so I just really appreciate you bringing that up um and you said that you've had some family members um that were presented with the same sort of view oh yeah yeah Mm -hmm. which is it's crazy I literally till this conversation with you I've Hold that assumption. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's good to yeah. know. It's good to know that that does not put you in more danger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's all. It was good for me talking to you because I hadn't have thought about it in that way before. Mm-hmm. And then when we started talking, I reached out to some people that I had known that it was presented to them in that way, and it was specifically presented to them in that way from the universe, the Christian university that they went to mm-hmm. college yeah. at. And I don't want to say that people are trying to do uh, bad things with modesty. Obviously, I think anyone that is teaching modesty messaging means well. But at some point you have to say, now we know better. We we know that this does not work. 
We know that people are getting unwanted attention when they're wearing full burkas. Yeah. Like if, you know, because burka is the only thing that I can think of that covers your entire body completely, mm-hmm. even your hair and everything. But, you know, I personally have gotten unwanted sexual attention wearing baggy chef pants and a hoodie. Yeah. Or, you know, just coming off of a shift and looking like absolute trash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, <laughs> it's just interesting because I think that what we really need to focus on is raising boys and men that are not viewing women as property or who are not viewing the clothing that women wear as a reason to go after them. Mm-hmm. So, and I think this brings me to a good analogy not a good analogy, but <laughs> to an analogy that I've heard over and over again. And it kind of goes like this. Um, so there's different ways of looking at it. There's sometimes people talk about a car. Sometimes people talk mm-hmm. about a bank. Some, But I'm going to go with the cell phone analogy. Uh, so if you, you know, put your nice new cell phone in your car on the console and you, you know, lock your car, but then you walk away from your vehicle, or maybe you you forget to lock it, but you walk away and you go into your house. Someone comes by and sees that cell phone, Mm -hmm. and they go into your car and steal it. So if you do that, you know, are you kind of at fault for leaving your cell phone in there? Mm -hmm. And another analogy that I have heard is, you know, if I'm a bank manager and I leave the bank for the night and forget to lock the door... Someone comes by and robs the bank. Am I at fault for that? Hmm. These are the analogies to explain why women should dress modestly so that something doesn't happen to them. Well, there's a couple of issues with these analogies. First of all is that women aren't cell phones or banks. (laughs) We are human beings that make our own choices. And someone does not have the ability to aggress against our bodies because of what we're wearing or where we are. We should be, just because we are who we are, we should be okay to walk wherever we want to, wear whatever we want to, and simply say, no, I'm not interested in you. And that should be enough. We have the ability to do that, you know? And then secondly, the reason why it's wrong, these analogies are wrong, is because it's victim blaming. Mm. (laughs) I don't care if I forget to lock my car. That does not give you the right to come onto my personal property and steal Mm. anything. Or I don't care if I forget to lock the bank when I leave. If you are a bank robber and you come in and steal that, that is your own choice and you are wrong for doing that. So it's just, there's a couple of issues with that. Yeah. It it almost seems to me like you were talking about for your daughter, you're going to say, be aware of your surroundings. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's almost like, I've never heard the bank thing. That makes sense. It doesn't, (laughs) I mean, it makes sense how that analogy comes up about incorrectly to describe Mm -hmm. this but it's almost like saying you need to hide that there's any money in here well of course there's money in here it's a bank right you know and so or it's like of course I have boobs I'm a woman exactly like I I shouldn't have to hide that exactly but then the thing that you can do is the situational awareness and everything that's been very helpful to clear things up for me and it's interesting it's even more interesting to me um the ages at which girls and women start to see men or notice men giving them unwanted attention. Mm. And it's very, very young. Um, The youngest that I've heard is eight. Oh my gosh. Um, But the average range, I believe, is about 12 to 13. So at that point, I mean, we there's an issue that doesn't have anything to do with women. Mm -hmm. We need to be raising sons and nephews and 
holding our men accountable to not view women as only sexual beings. That's yeah. part of who we are. Yeah. That's not our main worthiness. And it has nothing to do with whether or not you should come up to me and give me unwanted attention, yeah. you know? Do you think in a sense that, especially evangelical portrayals of purity culture almost over-sexualize a person? I do. Yeah. And I think it's because that's, one of the only ways that we focus on relationships. Hmm. So like imagine if we were teaching 12 to, you know, 18 year old girls, hey, let's let's look at healthy relationships. What hmm. do what does good communication look like? Mm-hmm. Let let's talk about this. You know, what do roles look like in a marriage or in a partnership, yeah. you know? What are some red flags you should look for when you're dating someone? Hmm. What are they trying to manipulate or trying to you know, control your behavior, you know, there's so many things that go into relationships, not just marriages, but relationships in general. And when I was being taught, it was like, it was like purity and sexuality was like the one thing. thing. And then when I got married, I had to learn how to do all of the other things. Yeah. So I don't know if that was your experience as well, but... Um... Well, we dated forever, so oh, okay. we had to do some of that <laughs> along the way. But I will say also, before we go on, I've been thinking also about the Matthew 5 verse about mm-hmm. cutting off, you know, gouging out the eye, cutting off the hand. And I've wondered a little bit if that's where the safety problem came in my head because it sounds, again, I don't think Jesus is actually saying really anything about uh, the if we're going to even apply like a woman here, like he's Mm -hmm. not really saying anything about, he's saying like, you have to have responsibility. But I think I took it as like, Oh, it is a short step. Like Mm -hmm. there is not much room from what you think to what you're going to do. Right. I don't think it's the point of this look actually looking at it, but that's how I think it was at least processed in my mind, maybe presented to me. And it sounds like to you, it was presented as like, you are the hand that needs shot. (laughs) And it's just really, That's been something interesting to me. And I also kind of wonder, um, do you think, and it's hard to say because we're women and not men, but Mm -hmm. has this sort of evangelical presentation affected men's, I guess you said agency or Mm -hmm. or the thought that they have control or have um, a decision to make when it comes to like arousal or lust Mm -hmm. or something like that. Even lust is a strange word to say because I don't think those are the same thing, Mm -hmm. but yeah, do you, how do you think this has affected men? I know we have limited experience, but. Mm-hmm. Well, I will say in the, in the books that I've read that interview mm-hmm. a lot of people that yes, it has, they were kind of fearful of their response mm-hmm. to women, Yeah, you know, which is like the other side of it. We're fearful of them and they're fearful yeah. of <laughs> their reaction. Uh, but in my own life, I've talked to a couple of men who this whole issue was really geared around what kind of leaders that they were. Hmm. So like if you need, if you want to be a good leader in the church and a good leader in your household, you have to remain pure. So if you think that you are destined to become a leader in the church and you think that you have to be the leader of your home, then you need to keep yourself from doing this thing that you're viewing as bad. And so this is not what um, the, the men that have told me have said, but I can imagine that you would be so afraid of doing something wrong that you may, you know, 
cut out women from your life for a certain period of time until you feel like you can control that or whatever it is. But you want to be such a good leader and you want to be a good leader in your home and you want to be a good husband and all this stuff. So you don't allow yourself to be in a healthy relationship with a woman because you're afraid of doing the wrong thing. That's really interesting. So it's, it's sad because like you said before, so much of it does seem to come from a, almost a noble desire that gets released. Right. Like, right. And that's why I wanted to say about the modesty messaging is that I don't think people are going about this in like, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you this because I want to hurt you. You know, I I think they're going about, I want to tell you this because I want to keep you safe. I want to keep you pure. I want to follow what we think God wants in our lives. But when you take away all of that and you get down to the actual facts and statistics about how this affects people, Mm -hmm. the facts are that it's not really doing what you're thinking it's doing. Yeah. So that's probably the the problem with it. Yeah. (laughs) I would say. I think so. So going back a little bit to like modesty, keeping you safe and things like that, or modesty, you know, giving the people the ability to kind of subtly blame the victim, right? I don't know if you've ever heard of a Christian university called the Bob Jones University. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of them? So I, it's funny because I was actually raised on their curriculum. Oh. I was homeschooled until I was in ninth grade and we did Bob Jones University curriculum. Hmm. So that's neither here nor there. But that's just <laughs> like a fun little factoid. Okay. <laughs> so this university has a pretty strict dress code. I would say a, a very strict one in regards to universities. From the 2021-2022 student handbook, it reads that business casual style for women is required. Hmm. It implies a dress or a blouse or a top with a skirt or dress pants. Um, They need to wear khaki pants or something that's not jeans. They can only wear dresses and tops with sleeves or without sleeves that cover your shoulder bone. And that they need their pants should not be... Um, more than two inches above the ankle shorts are not allowed Um, bib overalls are not allowed exercise pants sweatpants uh, leggings or any pants of any other style that is designed to cling and that is exactly from the handbook Mm -hmm. again that is this year so do you agree that that's probably a very conservative dress code okay (laughs) yeah in regards to universities in general so like things that people wear to college So this university was actually audited by a third party in 2014 because it came out that they were blaming sexual abuse survivors instead of the perpetrators of the crime. According to an independent report, Bob Jones University displayed a blaming and disparaging attitude towards abuse victims. According to 56% of the 381 current and former students and employees. So about half the 166 people surveyed who identified themselves as abuse victims, said that the university actively discouraged them from going to the police. About half the victims here were abuse had happened on campus. Half of them had it happened before and then were seeking help after the fact. Of course, this also leaves out all the people to whom something happened that they didn't feel safe coming forward. So this is a very clear example of, on a larger scale, Modesty is being taught, modesty is being required, and yet this is still happening. Not only is it still happening, because unfortunately in our society it's going to happen, but when it has happened, the survivors are being told that they're being blamed, first of all, but they're also being told don't go to the police, you know, 
and things like that. So I believe that modesty messaging makes it easier to blame the victims and hide predators of sexual crime, which is why I won't be teaching my daughter about modesty. I'll be just teaching her what relationships look like. And we've talked about some of that, the red flags and things like that. Now, when it comes to purity and things like that, you know, I'm going to teach her about what relationships look like, and that includes modesty, purity, how to keep yourself safe, and all those kind of things. So So I do think, even though you've brought up this is a broader issue than just the church, um, specifically in Christianity, we're taught abstinence Mm -hmm. before marriage. That's how, that's the traditional understanding of interpreting the Bible, especially in evangelicalism. Is there a space to teach that to children at all, do you think, or not even a space for it? I think that you should teach that as an option if you're not feeling safe or ready. And I don't want people out there to be like, well, you just want young children to have sex. No, Mm. that's not what I want, obviously. (laughs) You know, if abstinence only before marriage sexual education worked, then I would be like, yes, let's mm, do it. Yeah. <laughs> the The issue is that it doesn't work. <laughs> and so, yes, I think it should be taught as an option, you know, as an option if you're not safe, if you're not ready. if And readiness means emotionally ready, which can last into your 30, 40s, you know. Yeah, yeah. Don't feel like you have to do this if you're not ready. And don't feel like you have to do this if you're not safe. And again, that can last your entire life if that's what you feel. So, yes, I do think that it should be taught as an option. I just don't think it should be portrayed as the only option. So I plan to tell my daughter how to spot bad signs, how to protect herself, how to be safe. And at the end of the day, what does it mean to be a good partner? Not in this only this one area, but in all areas. How How do you look at someone and you can tell that they're not ready? And then you should back off, you know? So again, yes, I think the abstinence should be taught, but not as a one-size-fits-all thing that everybody should do. And do you think, well, and we're going to get into your thoughts on the Bible Mm -hmm. as our part two, but as we transition into that, I would ask, do you think that the Bible portrays sexuality in the way that churches do today? No, I don't think that it does. And I'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about how I view the Bible. Mm -hmm. But you see so many different situations of sexuality in the Bible. And I think really they run the gamut. I mean, there's some bad ones. There's some good ones. And I think what the Bible is really pointing to is how to be a good partner. You know, how to respect your partner. How to, and when they talk about to remain pure in the marriage bed, you know, that's part of being a good partner. Do you want your spouse or your partner, whoever you're in the relationship with, to feel slighted, to feel upset because you went out and cheated on them? No, of course you don't. So I think that the Bible has many, many stories of sexuality, and yet I don't believe, honestly, I really do not believe that it points to abstinence only until marriage. And part of the reason why is because of Song of Solomon. Mm-hmm which is a very uh, sensual book of the Bible. And I think, and again, we'll get into more of this, but I think the Bible has somewhat been taken and warped into a certain thing because at that time people were afraid, and because they were afraid, they used the Bible to back up what they were trying to teach. Hmm. 
So for parents that want their children to wait, I would ask them kind of why. I think they really need to look into why they think they need to wait until marriage. What is the point of it? What is What should sex look like? What does intimacy, intimacy in real relationships look like? So let's focus more as parents on the whole scope of relationships instead of one facet of it. Because the whole point of your child living with you <laughs> is to learn how to be a good human being and to learn how to be in relationships with other people. So if you, for instance, I was told I couldn't date until I was 16. And even after that, it was supposed to be like a courtship type where I was constantly with my parents. There was no kissing, etc. So that doesn't really teach you how to be a person in a relationship because that's not how relationships are in reality. Yeah, so there all the time. Yeah, exactly. So instead of teaching, hey, don't have sex until you're married, let's start teaching them what to do in an actual relationship. And I think from that will lead healthy sexuality. So, but honestly, <laughs> my biggest fear with the purity culture after all of this, is that an entire generation of us was hurt by this doctrine. So many of us will then turn and inflict the same shame and guilt on our own children, and that makes me really upset and really scared. Um, That's why it's such a big problem for me, because I never want my daughter to feel like I did. I don't want her to have her body and motives questioned before she even has a chance to grow into it. So I have to protect her now that I know better, And I hope that people that listen to this will maybe take a deeper look into purity culture and how damaging it really is. So I know that the Bible um, is important to you and has been important to your faith journey as far as reevaluating it, rethinking uh, your relationship with it and how to view it. Could you give us a little background on how you were raised to think of the Bible? Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents and the church that I went to raised us to think of the Bible as extremely literal. Every okay. single word of the Bible was literally God's hand through the person that was writing it, writing mm, it. Wow. Um, and that every single thing that happened in the Bible was literal. I didn't know until last year that Jonah, the book of Jonah, is actually satire. Hmm. I had no idea. Um, of course, we always look at the Psalms and we're like, yes, this is poetry. But mm-hmm. I was never, I was always taught that every single story in the Bible was extremely literal. Mm. So it's, in working through my deconstruction journey, it's been rough trying to reconcile how I was taught about the Bible versus how I think about it now. And a book that really, really helped me with that was How Not to Read the Bible Mm -hmm. by Dan Kimball. And I don't agree with every single thing in that book, which obviously is probably true of every book. But um, the way that he presented the Bible really helped me to Mm. kind of understand more about it. Yeah, and what sort of things um, in that book do you remember change your mind the most, Mm -hmm. perhaps? So it, first of all, it's that the Bible needs to be taken in context mm-hmm. and every single verse needs to be taken in context. You can't pick out a verse and say, okay, this, this thing means this thing, but how do you know that if you don't look at it in context? Who, who was there? Yeah. What was the culture at the time? Who was it written to? Who wrote it? Yeah. You know, all of these things went into why this verse or this book or whatever it was was written Mm -hmm. and then again that the book the bible is not one book Mm -hmm. it's if you you should view it more as a library of books 
So there's the creation myth, and that's written in a certain way. And like I spoke about Jonah, that's a satire, you know, commentary on the time. Then you have Psalms, which is a book of poetry. You have, you know, there's a lot of different genres, and there's a lot, it spans a huge amount of time, yeah. the Bible does. So it's not like each one of these things happened every, after another, and one person was sitting down mm-hmm. writing this entire book, right? Yeah. So, And that is a very evangelical mm-hmm. thought, I know, mm-hmm. as far as this idea of it's all one book with different voices and different people, but it's all mm-hmm. pointing to Christ is the idea. So Well, and I was also taught that you could take the Bible and open it and read it every single day and what you read, you know, God was trying to tell yeah. you something or speak to you yeah. in that Your application. Time. Right. I think it's been a big, that's, that's right. maybe what I'm more getting at is like Christ is where it's all headed, which I mean, I could still get on board with that, mm-hmm. but to say Christ is speaking to you in this verse at this moment for exactly, I mean, I don't know, you get, that's where people think they need to go to wars and need to, exactly. So that's interesting. (laughs) Yes. And I will say, I do think that people that religiously read the Bible and I say religiously as in like every day, (laughs) (laughs) not like, yes. Um, religiously read the Bible and they think that everything is literal. It Mm. gives, honestly, I really think it gives them the ability to not act in the situations that we find ourselves in, in our current climate. Mm. Because if you're reading the Bible and you're, and you're thinking that the end times are coming yeah. Yeah. and that Jesus is coming and nothing matters because Jesus is coming, then you have the ability to just write off social issues that yeah. we're dealing with currently, mm. not do anything about them. I mean, why should we care that this thing is happening if it doesn't matter because Jesus is coming so yeah. we don't need to actually help anybody you know Mm, and I have had that told to me multiple times this isn't just kind of like an ephemeral idea that I have you know no I think that's very and I've I've kind of encountered that thought of like well literal is the most responsible way of reading but when we say literal I think we're completely disregarding like what you said genre and stuff Mm -hmm. like that's not how you would read a newspaper article necessarily like you know something someone's quote or Mm -hmm. you know you know right but we have a different mindset a lot of the time well by we i mean evangelicals looking at the bible we think this again with the taking the verse the verse of the day right (laughs) i don't know it's it's interesting as i've been doing this journey i've started reading larger chunks at a time Mm -hmm. um and it changes a lot Mm -hmm. to read a whole chapter or a whole book instead of the highlighted verses right in your Bible. Right. Yeah, know. and I I would actually say that reading it literally is the least responsible way to mm, read it because yeah. if you're reading it literally, then you're putting the Bible in places where it doesn't belong. Mm, and I know that yeah. a lot of people would be like all up in arms about that because the Bible's supposed it's as it was taught to me, it was the be end all be all. Yeah. But guess what? The Bible is not a biology textbook. Yeah. It's just not. It's not a political commentary i mean at times Mm -hmm. jesus does make political commentary for instance when he cursed the fig tree the fig tree was the um, roman empire's symbol so when he cursed the fig tree Mm. it was him doing a commentary on i've never heard that yeah so yeah look at that is that in that book i've got the book the how not to read the bible maybe i'll run (laughs) i think i don't know if that's in there but that's very um, cool though yeah so and i think there are those things in there 
But let me just give you an example. So like when we hear the word earth, Mm -hmm. right? We tend to think of the picture that was taken by the Hubble telescope of the entire world, Mm -hmm. right? We know that the world is round. We know that the oceans are where they are. We know that the land is where it is. We know what it looks like from space. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. We, we know that this is what the world looks like. However, if you said earth to someone living in Genesis times, what they would think of is their surrounding area. So when it says in the flood account that the flood covered the entire earth and that everything died, et cetera, et cetera, that doesn't necessarily mean the whole world. It means that it technically would mean the the surrounding areas where that person that wrote this Mm -hmm. lived. However, I was taught that the flood covered the entire world and that everything died. So of course that comes with other questions. Well, then... Why isn't there more evidence of yeah. it? Why would God kill every single one of the creatures? How yeah. does that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's almost like in a sense we think we're reading it literally, but mm-hmm. we're reading it with our language. We're reading uh, with in our, our brain, <laughs> in our culture, at our time, yeah. with everything that we know. And yeah. that's not what, that's not when the Bible was written. That's not who the Bible was written to. Yeah. And it's not, it's almost like if, the context gives the true literal. I don't know. That's right. an interesting No, thought. no, I agree. The context gives you what the Bible actually means. Yeah. And the way that I feel about the Bible now is this is this is a book that shows you different times in history. Hmm. Shows you what they were doing. It shows you what the Judeo-Christian God, how he was working in lives at that hmm. time. And I still I still love the person of Jesus. I wish that everyone could look at Jesus and just be like, yes, let's be like him. Yeah. You know, because if we were all Christ-like, then we would all <laughs> go out of our way to support minorities. Mm. We would all go out of our way to support people that are homeless, that are in jail, that are, you know, living on the streets and need help, that are drug addicted. We, would, we wouldn't be judging people. We would yeah. be working against judgment. However, obviously that's not the case. So I believe that if the Bible was literal, it would not change how I live hmm. at all. Because I live in a way of how how can I treat my fellow human beings? What is the most amount of good that I can do? And when you say if the Bible was literal, you're saying the way we read it. The way or that like, I was raised. Okay. As in yeah. like the flood actually covered the, okay. the yeah. you know, the world was made in seven actual days or six actual days mm-hmm. and then God rested and it was a 24-hour day yes, and all yes. this stuff. No, ma- That doesn't matter to me. Yeah. It doesn't matter if the Bible is literal um, because I'm still going to live the way that I'm living mm-hmm. currently. So mm-hmm. I just think that if you are reading the Bible, you can find anything you want in there mm-hmm. to, to back up what you're doing, even if it's something terrible. Mm, yeah. So let's just, let's think about what makes us actually good humans mm-hmm. and, you know, look at the Bible in context Instead of saying, this is, this is a way for me to prove to you that yeah. the sun is whatever. <laughs> yeah. Have you, have you stopped interacting with the Bible in your, where you are now? Or is that something you still read? Or For the most part, I would say I've stopped. Okay. Because I just think that you, know, you can read any section of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily applicable to our own lives. Because mm-hmm. even in the verses that people put on like mugs and stuff, you know, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me or, you know, Psalm 23 or mm-hmm. Proverbs 31, you know, all of these things. Like, even if you, if you want to believe that and you want to believe that that one verse is applicable to your life, 
then and it brings you joy then whatever however it, you got to take all those verses in context and when yeah. you take them in context they don't apply to your own life mm, because they yeah. weren't written to you yeah. That's, <laughs> so it's yeah. like grabbing a letter that my mom wrote to my sister and being like she writes at the last line i love you so much i hope you have a great week and i'm like oh my god thank you so mm. much <laughs> but in the end of the day it wasn't written to me yeah. so yeah i could take that and be yeah. happy about it but it wasn't written to me yeah. so and i think that the bible still has worth mm-hmm. but i don't think we and i think a lot of evangelical Christians in general and other sects of, you know, religion or Christianity have made it almost like an idol. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they worship what's in the Bible. They worship the verses instead of realizing that we're supposed to be doing these things that the Bible tells us to do mm-hmm. instead of just reading our Bible and then feeling like we're good Christians because oh, we read our Bible that good. day. Worship the verses. I've never heard that, but that is <laughs> so And I would also on. say, so I think... On. I think the Bible, from where it began in Greek and Hebrew and where it is now, I don't think that the people that originally wrote it would necessarily even yeah. recognize it. Because, and there's been even words that aren't translatable, so words were made up to, to put in that yeah. space. And that's led to a lot of issues, and I don't want to get into it, but issues yeah. with you know certain things. And so I just... Sure. Applications, yeah. And so it's like... Again, if I read the Bible and I'm reading it to see what that what the Hebrew people were going through at that time period or something similar, mm-hmm. I think that's fine. But if I'm reading it and I'm saying, okay, I'm going to back up my political beliefs upon this Bible verse, then that you're taking it and using it for something it wasn't meant to be used for. So final question. If you were to return to a worship practice, because it sounds like that's something you would be open to in the future, possibly, what would that have to look like now for you? I think that's a really good question because I do miss the community. Mm-hmm. Like I've talked about before, I was part of it for so long, you know, and some of the people that I met, I really still love. But to return to something, I think that it would have to match more what my values are. And a lot of that is helping in communities that don't have help. So that would be like minorities or overseas where people need help from us and um, being tangible in the community, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Also, it would have to include um, women being a part of leadership mm-hmm. because I just don't believe that you can be successful if you don't have everyone. If you don't have diversity, then how are you going to be successful? Because you're only hearing one view, Mm, (laughs) you know, and that's something that's taught over and over and over in leadership training that you have to be, you have to include all voices because if you don't, then you don't know if you're making the right choice. Mm, Yeah. So, so yeah, it would, it would involve matching my values when it comes to helping the community and then women in leadership. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I, I think that spirituality, you can have a lot of different things. You know, I love to meditate. I do yoga a lot. And both of those things, I think, are spiritual practice. Yeah. So. Well, thank you so much. It's been very wonderful talking to you. And I know that this is something that's going to impact a lot of people, especially people that maybe aren't aware of how purity culture has affected them and mm-hmm. their families and their friends. And so... Thanks for being here. Of course. Thank you for having me.
If this episode was meaningful to you, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash deconstructing the myth so that episodes like today's keep coming.